A marvelous pastor by the name of Marjorie Kitchell, who for many years, I guess 50 years, pastored in Boulder City, Nevada, was preaching one December Sunday on the subject of Paul's famous remark in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, which reads, for the wages of sin is death, for the cost, the price, the consequence of sin is spiritual and permanent physical death. For the wages of sin is death, but, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to sit with that for just a moment. The fundamental condition of life as we live in a condition of sin is ultimately the decline towards a final and, and all-encompassing kind of death. And in the midst of that darkness and that reality, there rings out the wonderful word, but. However, God acts in a way that changes that reality. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Reverend Kitchell on that particular Sunday morning wanted to illustrate uh, this reality, this great truth in a very vivid way. She wanted to help people understand the ready availability of the gift of God's salvation for them. So she pointed to a particularly beautiful poinsettia on the platform of the church and she said, whoever wants this beautiful poinsettia simply needs to come forward and take it. And it was crickets. And it was immovable statues in the sanctuary of her church. No, 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 seriously, she said, all you have to do is just come and take it. And Marjorie just waited. And she waited some more. And finally, a mother in the congregation raised her hand and said, I'll take it. And the pastor said, great, it's yours. It's yours for the taking. And the mother uh, looked a little uncomfortable, and she elbowed her son who was sitting next to her and said, you go get it for me. <laughs> and the boy looked alarmed. And the pastor said, no, 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 that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Whoever wants this particular gift must come and take it for themselves. Nobody else can do this for you. And the woman in her seat thought the act would be too embarrassing, and so she just shook her head quickly. So I waited again, says the pastor. It was a gorgeous, gorgeous plant. Unusually large flowers wrapped in red cellophane, tied around with a gold ribbon, a beautiful, magnificent a gift. And then somebody in the congregation snickered and said, what's the catch? Well, what's really going on here? She said, no catch. I tell you, it's free, absolutely free. Again, nobody moves. So a college student home for vacation asks, is it glued to the altar? Is this a trick? Leave it to the college student to ask the important questions. No, it's not a trick. It's not glued to the altar, says the pastor. There aren't any strings of any kind attached. It's yours. It's right here. It's for the taking. Well, asked a pretty teenager, can I take it after the service? 
Kitchell was tempted to give in at this point, but she just shook her head and said, nope, you must come and get it now. She thought of that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 where the apostle writes, today is the day of salvation. The opportunity is great, but the offer is not going to be there always, she was thinking. Frankly, says Pastor Kitchell, I was beginning to wish I'd never started this whole thing. It wasn't working out like I had anticipated. And when all of a sudden, a woman in the far back of the church stood up. I didn't recognize her. She must have been a visitor, a first-time timer to this place. But she started to walk down the aisle, and all eyes turned on this woman. And she walked more quickly as she got towards the front, as if she was afraid she might change her mind. And then she strode up to the platform and she picked up the plant. I'll take it, she said. I'll take it. And as she returned to her seat, I beamed inside and I launched into my sermon, the gift of God is eternal life. Believe it. Receive it. The gift is free. At the close of the service that particular day, the congregation um, got up from their seats and made their way out on towards the rest of the activities of the day, but the woman who had taken the plant lingered behind. And walking towards the front of the sanctuary, she approached the pastor who was still gathering her notes and her Bible, and, and she came up to the pastor and she said, this flower is just too pretty. It's too beautiful for me to take it home for free. I couldn't do that with a clear conscience. Here, she said, as she thrust out her hand and stunned for a moment, Pastor Marjorie just watched as the woman turned on her heel and walked out the door, clutching the plant close to her chest. And I looked down at the crumpled paper that she had stuffed into my hand, and it was a a $10 bill. I'm somewhat tempted to end the whole story there and to send you all home and just let you think about it. Because probably everything you need to know is really contained in that story. But because I'm a preacher, I'm going to go on. (laughs) And hoping that we have a little bit more time, I'd like to invite you to think with me about the import of this story as it bears upon what the scriptures tell us about ourselves and about our great God. I like this story because it illustrates in such a helpful way the struggle that a lot of us, I think, have around this whole subject of salvation. And one of the struggles we have about it, I think, at least some of us, is the idea that salvation could freely be given to us. That notion seems to some of us somewhat impossible. You cannot tell me that something as flaming red spectacular as the assurance of the complete forgiveness of all of my sins and an admission ticket to an eternal communion with God would be without cost of any kind to us. That seems impossible. You're telling me that all of the stuff that I've done or that I've said that I would be utterly humiliated to have projected up there on the video screen uh, 
that all of this stuff that I did not do when I should have done it or did not say when I could have said it, if that was suddenly put up there for everybody to see, humiliating me to death, all of that stuff that I was just too selfish or too scared to do or not do has been wiped away and I did not have to do a thing? That God welcomes me into eternal life with him in the company of eternity forevermore and all I have to do is just believe it and receive it? That's impossible. Where are the strings? What's the catch? How many of us at some point find ourselves feeling that? I believe we come by this skepticism honestly and naturally. So much of the rest of our lives, if you think about it, is about earning things and paying for things, especially this time of year. Did I do well enough to earn that bonus, we wonder? Have I accumulated enough in my bank account to pay for all of these things I just bought online or with that plastic card in almost every single sphere of life where there's a big payoff, there's a big put in. Think about that. Somebody doesn't just freely give us an Eagle Scout award. They don't just freely hand us a college admission letter or a job promotion or even an airline upgrade. We got those things because in one way or another, we racked up sufficient points. We live in a point system world. We got all of the things, at least it feels like, so many of the things because of the effort we put into it, the earning energy that we exerted in life. Heck, not even Santa hands out free presents. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Yeah, even Santa keeps track of the naughty points and the nice points. This is the way the world that we live in seems to work. When I was uh, growing up, I worked very hard at, at being good. I know that my mom and dad and my grandparents never meant for me to attach my sense of, of self-worth or my value to them as, as being uh, really conditioned upon how well I did in school or in sports or in, in social arenas, but I did develop that mindset just the same in spite of them. I really did come to think it was about the points I was racking up. That's where my value came from. Uh, that was a marker of how beloved I was. Maybe some of you did too. This performance uh, culture is pervasive. It's so powerful in American life. And so many of us go through our life anxiously assessing our looks and our social media likes and our grades and our accolades. Some of us conclude as we evaluate ourselves that our point total is pretty high. We feel good about that as we compare it with other people's point totals, as much as we can assess that. And some of us assess ourselves in these ways and we feel pretty bad. It seems like our score is disappointingly low. And so this way of looking at ourselves that gets enculturated and built up over the years for all of us, I suspect, 
This way of looking at life gets transferred over to our very conceptualization of our relationship with God himself. All religions, with the exception of Christianity, have this point system. They operate on the basis of this climbing of the ladder through rituals, through religious deeds, through religious knowledge, through good deeds, almsgiving, just develop your own rung. This is the way religion works. And many of us, as we think about the subject of eternal salvation, are assessing where we are on the ladder, the point system ourselves with God. Some of us conclude that we're quite secure, actually, that things are going to be just fine in the salvation department because our performance is obviously above the bar that we have defined as good. We've done enough good deeds. We've gone enough to enough religious services. We've put uh, often enough into the plate to take the poinsettia home. We're not that anxious about doing that. We might not want to say it out loud. We might want to walk up the aisle and do it. But we feel that the poinsettia, the, the gift of salvation, is ours because we've earned it. Others of us, not so sure about that. Not so confident about that because when we think of all that we've done or that we failed to do or said, we feel insecure because if God, like Santa, has really been paying attention, then we're in trouble. We know we've been pretty naughty at times. We may be doomed. When you consider your performance... Do you tend to feel secure or insecure about your eternal salvation? Honestly, ask yourself that question. Do I feel mainly secure or insecure? And why is that? It's a trick question, actually, that question I just posed. Because if Christmas tells us anything at all, it tells us that salvation is actually not based on our performance. This is what makes Christianity different from every other religious tradition. It's not a religion. It's not about our performance as the main thing. If we could rack up enough points by our good behaviors to impress God into saving us, then Jesus would never have needed to come. He would not have needed to bother showing up on this planet Earth. He'd simply have sent another prophet. God would have sent another prophet. He would have said uh, to, uh, to us, I want you to pay attention to those Pharisees over there, those Sadducees over there, those teachers of the law over there, because they're showing you what's required to get in good with me. Those religious figures in the first century were living out the earning approach to salvation with tremendous passion. They rarely missed a religious service. They followed the requirements of the Jewish law with obsessive loyalty. They dropped coins into the plate every single week. They scrupulously avoided contact with uh, dirty people and dirty things. They were extremely good people by human standards. We often turn them into Simon Legrees, but they were actually very good people by 
the kinds of standards we would often define people as good, but the Christ child would grow up one day to say this, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you are depending on your goodness to get you in, you're going to have to go way beyond what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are doing. Because when God considers righteousness, and righteousness, by the way, is simply Bible speak for being aligned with God, being, being in conformity with who God is, God's nature and character. Um, when, when we think about righteousness, it is really hard for us to get our mind around it. I, I want to suggest that in my own life, I, I often have this tendency to have what I'd call a Santa-sized notion of goodness. I often think of it in terms of naughty or nice. Uh, I am often um, evaluating myself in terms of just this standard of being a nice person or being a naughty person, and then by that standard, I feel pretty good about myself most of the time. I feel I'm, I'm pretty good. God, however, lives in a different state. God lives in a state of consistently pure, radiant goodness for which the Bible uses the code word holiness. Holiness. And because God's ways are higher than our ways, he tells us himself, it is difficult for us in this life ever to understand how good holiness is. Uh, one of the greatest gifts that God gives us, however, by sending Jesus into the world is to give us a glimpse of it, to give us a tiny taste of what this holiness, this kind of goodness really looks like. Holiness is the kind of goodness that is willing to walk away from cosmic comforts and eternal ecstasies and, and, and the adoration of every being around you leaving all of that behind in order to enter into the mortal flesh of a human baby in a dirty stable in the armpit of the world in order to build relationship with people who will never appreciate you. That's the level of goodness that holiness is. That it would give up all of that to come here and build relationships hoping to bring blessing to people who would receive him not. And I think I'm good because I occasionally suffer people that are somewhat boring or foolish. He leaves behind glory to commune with people whose processing power is to him as a bacterium is to Beethoven. Only a lot more. And I struggle with annoying people and call myself good. Holiness is the kind of goodness that is willing to work for 30 years in absolute obscurity 
just continue to ply the trade, uh, to do the work, waiting patiently for the right time to speak up when those around him in history are ready to hear the message, a message so brilliant, so life-changing that people ought to be begging him from day one for the opportunity to hear from his voice, a message so brilliant and fabulous that people are still repeating it 2,000 years later, as we're doing here this morning, but I think I'm good because I avoid interrupting my wife or my coworkers for a full three minutes until I can finally give my important opinion to them as a precious gift. There's a difference here. Holiness is the kind of goodness that is so tuned to the needs of others that it is willing to forsake its own physical needs to feed 5,000 growing souls and growling souls and stomachs on a hillside or to wait by a well to uh, reach out and connect with a lonely outcast or to sense the touch of a quietly suffering, bleeding woman in a crowd when everyone else is pressing around him. And I think I'm amazing because I finally and somewhat reluctantly give in to some repeated request I get this season for charitable giving. Holiness is the kind of goodness that benefits from being holy. Holiness is the kind of goodness that bends to lift the lame, that embraces the leper, that goes out of his way to build bridges with people that his nation, the Jewish nation, absolutely hates. And I think I'm good because I say a cheery hello to strangers as I walk past them as quickly as I can. Holiness is the kind of goodness that when it is nailed on a cross and hanging before a jeering crowd, delighting in every agony that he is suffering, and when he could vaporize his killers with a blink of his eyelash, holiness is the kind of goodness that says, Father, forgive them. They obviously don't know what they're doing. And I think that I am good because I don't curse out, at least out loud, those people that inconvenience me when I've got places to go and things to do. Jesus once said, no one is good except God alone. And when we really study the life of Jesus and study our own lives, we start to realize that offering our version of goodness <laughs> to God as a justification for why he should forgive us and accept us into eternity is, is sort of like um, trying to, to justify the, the, the taking of a magnificent uh, poinsettia with a gift of $10. Um, it's just a misunderstanding of the conditions. It's a total uh, misapprehension of the fundamental circumstances. It's, it's impossible that we should be able to justify ourselves on the basis of our version of goodness. 
But here is the good news. This is the amazing good news of Christmas. We are not asked to pay for our salvation at all. It's not part of the deal. We do not have the goodness in us to offset the weight of sin and balance the scales of God's holy justice. We don't have in us the goodness to open the door of heaven. No one is that good except God alone. And so out of his amazing goodness, God supplies in the person of Jesus the only sacrifice pure and weighty enough to balance the scales of holy justice and to counterweigh the effect of our sin perfectly. In the shape of his body, Jesus supplies the key that opens the gate of heaven. As Isaiah prophesied 700 years before crucifixion was invented as a form of execution, he said these words, surely he, meaning the coming Messiah, took up our pain and bore our suffering Yet we considered him punished by God. We totally misunderstood what was going on. We thought it must be something wrong with him that he was crucified. We didn't realize it was because of something wrong with us that he was enduring this. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, as some translations put it, by his stripes, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him has put the burden of who we are on him, laid on him the iniquity of us all. 700 years before crucifixion was invented, Isaiah foretold it. And then, some eight centuries later, an angel from heaven appears to a faithful man named Joseph and declares that Isaiah's prophecy is now being fulfilled. The angel said, Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, Yeshua in the Hebrew, which literally means God saves. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So here is the simple truth that I want to end with today. And it's the truth that I hope and pray you'll take into you for the very first time or at a much deeper level than you've ever taken it into you before. This is the truth. We sin, but God saves. As John Wesley said on his deathbed when asked what he was thinking, he said, I'm thinking two things. What a great sinner I am. And what a great Savior Christ is. We sin, but God saves. Jesus has done all of the work necessary for our salvation.
now that salvation is his gift. It's freely given. All that is asked, all that is asked as you stare from your seat at this poinsettia red good news is that you believe it and receive it. Nobody can do this for you. You can't look and say, well, my wife will do that for me. My husband will do that for me. My grandparents, they were very religious good people. They will procure this for me. No, nobody can do this for you. You must believe and receive for yourself this gift. You must come and get this gift. And I encourage you to take it in to your heart, into your life today. Let the glory of God's all-surpassing love for you change your life from the inside out. I'll tell you how you can know if you have truly received and taken in and taken home this amazing gift. Hereafter, that point that you do that, from that moment on, every religious service you attend, any religious sacrament you receive, any uh, good deeds that you do, every dollar that you give, each act of sacrifice or service or surrender that you make will no longer be any kind of an attempt to earn anything. Your life will no longer, at least in the spiritual realm, be about earning in any way. Every act of relative goodness that you and I do from the point that we receive that gift is simply an act of gratitude. It's an act of wanting to imitate, to align with, to be more like, to know more intimately this gloriously good holy God who came down for our salvation. And so if you are ready to receive this gift, uh, if you are ready to take it home with you for the first time or maybe to reclaim it in a deeper way, I just invite you to bow your head with me as we come before our God in prayer. Dearest God, this is the most important prayer that some of us have ever offered. We humbly confess that we have been deluded about our own goodness. We have not recognized our need of you. Or perhaps we've just been too discouraged about our badness to trust in the sufficiency of what you have done for us on the cross. Today, we want to make a new beginning. In the depths of our soul, we walk down the aisle, we take into our arms and our heart the blood-red gift of salvation that you have purchased, that you have freely given to us. We claim the truth that our sins have been, are, always will be fully forgiven, and that heaven is now assuredly our future home. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Send us forth now with joy 
to live our lives anew. For it is in your holy name that we pray, saying together,